This room is like a really bad haircut. We've got like harsh on the sides, no hair in the front, apart from a few whiskers. This church is beginning to look a lot like holidays. <laughs> There's also a few people serving in Paramount this morning. God bless them. It's so exciting, eh, to eh, know we're coming to church, but there's another Sovereign Grace Church meeting at the same time, preaching the same gospel. Such a special thing. Let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. For those of you that are new, we are presently in a series on the book of Exodus. We're looking at the whole premises from captivity to covenant. How the people of God were drawn out of slavery and drawn into a wonderful relationship with God. And here in Exodus chapter 20, we're assessing the Ten Commandments, which are so often different to what people think. They're not some harsh instruction from a harsh God, but they're the kind instruction of a loving Father, which really together as a ten form God's gracious path of life for us. They're a gift to us. And so as we come to the Eighth Commandment, it may be small, but it packs a punch like the others, and it is full of encouragement for us. There's some wonderful things that God wants to talk to us here from Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. This is what he says, you shall not steal. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. And Lord, I thank you that as we gather around your word today, what we feel is your care and your encouragement and your instruction to us as a kind and loving father. So Lord, would you have your way amongst us through this message? Lord, in a message that we can so often think is not going to apply to us. Would you help us see how it does? that our names are written here. For your glory, Lord. Amen. You know, when it comes to the Ten Commandments, this commandment to not steal, just like I think the Sixth Commandment to not murder, tends to be one of the commandments that we feel some type of light relief in. I'm sure for many of us, if not all of us, we've all thought, praise God, I've never stolen anything at last. A commandment that doesn't apply to me. I haven't burgled anybody recently. I haven't hijacked a car. I've never taken a plane that doesn't belong to me. And so we suddenly start to find ourselves, listen, thank the Lord that here we have a commandment that actually has nothing relevant to me at all. I remember when I lived back in the UK, we did a Christianity Explored course. And in one of the, um, one of the lessons, we spent some time looking at the Ten Commandments so people could look at their own lives and see how they've sinned before the Lord. And you start going through the Ten Commandments and you start listing them off and you see people just sinking in their chairs bit by bit until you get to you shall not murder. And then you see people pick up. They're like, oh, this is good. Alas, something for me. And then you explain what murder really is in the Bible. And it's a bit wider than we often think. And that if we hate people in our hearts as if we've murdered them, you watch them sink back in their seats again and you go back to square one until you say this, you shall not steal. And then they sit back up again and they start high-fiving each other because most people assume this has nothing to do with them at all. And a recent Barnabas 
um, study in the United States, one of the questions that they ask, they just randomly um, interview a ton of different Christians. And one of the questions they ask is if you shall not steal, if that was the only commandment in the Bible, do you think you'd get into heaven? Do you think you'd fulfill that one? 86% of people said, yes, I would. I can guarantee I've never stolen anything in my life. I would be in. I would have done it all by myself. I could satisfy that command all by myself. And I would hazard a guess that at least 86% of the people in this room think the same thing. That as we gather to this message, you think, praise God, this is clearly going to be very short. It doesn't apply to me. We can sing a song or we can go home and enjoy the weather. Thanks very much. Thanks for coming. But I want to encourage you that in reality... This command also speaks, I think, to every single one of us in the room. Because just like with all the other commandments, there is so much more to this command than meets the eye. It has prohibitions attached to it that are far wider than sometimes we actually think. But it also has opportunities attached to it. As with all the other commands in the Bible, there's not just something to not do. If we pay attention to the rest of Scripture, there's something to do instead. And when we start to examine just these four words in light of the rest of Scripture, you realize this has a ton to say to each and every one of us in the room. So I have three points this morning. Number one, the prohibition of this command. Number two, the opportunity of this command. And then number three, the hope of this command. So number one, the prohibition of this command. What exactly does this command prohibit? Well, the list is long, and so if you want to make notes, you can, or you can just listen in, but the list is long on what this actually prohibits as biblically defined, and they all fall into three main headers. The first main header of what this command prohibits is this. This command prohibits outright theft and robbery. I think we're probably all on the same page so far. You think, yes, I understand that. So taking something that does not belong to you whether through breaking and entering or robbery or theft or burglary or shoplifting, that is stealing before the Lord and wrong before him according to the Eighth Commandment. We see it take place in the Bible quite a few times, whether it be Rachel stealing her father's household gods or Achan stealing some goods from the fall of Jericho or Ahab and Jezebel stealing Naboth's vineyard. Every single time in the Bible, it goes really, really bad for them. Personally, and more often than not, those around them, as it brings the whole nation into disrepute. Stealing before the Lord is wrong, and this command prohibits outright theft and robbery. But that's not all it prohibits. Number two, it also prohibits cheating or swindling our fellow neighbors. So any attempt to cheat or swindle someone else The Bible calls that theft. We're stealing off them. And there are many factors that come under that. Auspices, so inaccurate measurements. Proverbs 11 verse 1a says, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord. You know, why, why is that there? Why is it such an abomination? It's such an abomination because in the Old Testament and ancient times, people did it all the time. They had false measures, false scales. They used things all the time. Why? To try and rip people off. 
They knew that they didn't have to pay as much as they should pay, so in the marketplace they just had false scales that were deliberately charging people more for their goods. And what God says is that is stealing. And you can tend to hear that and you think, well, you know, I don't work in a marketplace. You know, if I ever work in a fruit and veg shop, I'll let you know. But I don't. So, so where does this really apply to us today? Well, it does apply to us today. Because inaccurate measurements happen in several places in our world. They are called accounting scandals, for example. When the people that own the business deceive the stockholders. They know it's not worth as much as they're saying it is, but they deceive them so that they will invest more. Embezzlement. Money stealing from the workplace or the office or churches or charities. Taking advantage of the poor. Taking advantage of the poor because you know they're not going to be able to fight you back enough. You know they're not going to have access to the legal system that you have access to and you can outbid them in everything. And so you swindle them and you cheat on them. The world does that all the time. And the Bible makes it clear that's wrong. Martin Luther He said, this commandment is violated by taking advantage of our neighbor in any sort of dealing that results in loss to him. A person steals not only when he robs a man's safe or his pocket, but also when he takes advantage of his neighbor at the market, in a grocery shop, butcher store, wine and beer seller, workshop, and in short, wherever business is transacted and money is exchanged for goods, and labor. So whenever our individual, a friend, a fellow neighbor, whether we know them or not, is being cheated or swindled, that is stealing before the Lord. It is taking money off them for something that you know you shouldn't really be having. Also, fraudulent merchandise, selling things to people that are defective or services that you know they don't really need and neither will it be good for them. The Bible looks back at you and says, well, you're stealing off them. You're taking money off them for something you know they don't need and you know isn't really going to work for them. What about insurance fraud? The whole premise of committing with intent to obtain fraudulent outcome for an insurance process. You chat to people sometimes and you get the premise of, well, the insurance company's so big they've got loads of money, they won't miss it. Yeah, but God, who oversees your life, says that's stealing. It would be stealing from the insurer perspective. So if the insurer is trying to rip you off, you've paid for a service and you deserve to get something repaired, but they're trying to blag you out of it. That's wrong. It's sinful of the Lord. They're stealing. But also from the insured perspective, when we're claiming for things that we know we shouldn't really be doing that. Well, all I told them was that the window got smashed. I mean, admittedly, I did smash it myself because I wanted a new pane, but you know. Okay, well, that's fraud. That's stealing before the Lord. Plagiarism and piracy. Stealing someone else's paper or exam and palming it off as your own. It's stealing. It's claiming their work as your own and you're stealing it off the internet or whatever it be and just popping it in and claiming that it's your work. And piracy. Stealing music or movies or software online. Now, most of you wouldn't know how to do this, but if you're under the age of 21, you do. (laughs) Knowing how to go online and find movies and music and software that you haven't paid for, neither should you be having access to, is stealing. That's why, you know, at the start of the movie, and it was all that boring bit that you try and fast forward. It talks about copyright. 
Well, if you read it, it explains that you are doing an illegal act right now. You shouldn't be having it. Do you know about 12 years ago, when The Passion of the Christ came out, it was the most pirated movie. Does that not concern you a bit? That's weird. So I'm going to watch The Passion of the Christ on an illegally made movie I'm stealing. But I'm going to watch it anyway. You know, I think that is mocking the Lord in so many ways. Plagiarism and piracy are all acts of stealing. Also cheating employees out of their wages. The Bible speaks to that quite a bit. So in James chapter 5, verse 4, we read, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. It was common practice for people to employ people. Hey, listen, can you come and help me with my field? Yeah, awesome. Um, have a go, start repairing the field, start mowing it, whatever you need to do. That's really good. Oh, guys, you missed a bit. Wasn't done to my standard. Thanks for coming. I'm not paying you. Very, very common practice in ancient times. What God's helping us see is that's wrong. They did a fine job. Pay them their wages for the glory of God. And when we don't, their very lack of pay cries out to God as the Lord of hosts. He will do right and he will judge. You know, all these things are expressions of cheating and swindling our fellow neighbors. And all of them are illustrations of stealing. Everybody that came in this morning thinking, I've never stolen anything in my life. Would you like to reassess now? Because you realize, oh, maybe. But even then, we're not done. Because the third facet that this command prohibits, this command prohibits cheating and swindling from those in authority over us. So it's not just our fellow neighbors. It's those in authority over us as well. And so firstly and foremostly, the government the government that we can quickly decide, well, they've got loads of money. They'll be fine. But Jesus looks back at you in Mark chapter 12, verse 17, and says, render to Caesar's what is Caesar's. So cheating or fudging on our taxes, not putting in the right bills, not charging people the right amounts, just give me cash so that I don't have to pay taxes. It is sinful and wrong before the Lord. Because we are not rendering to Caesar's what Caesar owes in that moment. We're fudging society and we're sinning before the Lord. We're stealing. Also, our employers, the people that we work for, those are in authority over us in that regard. The Bible speaks to this. In Ephesians 4 verse 28, the first part of it, it says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. So let the thief no longer steal, but instead do honest work. That's what Christians are called to do. They're called to do honest work before the Lord. So let's just assess that. Squandering our employer's time or slacking off or taking excessive breaks. Fudging expense accounts or taking out of the warehouse. Falsifying sign-in sheets. Giving merchandise away. It's all stealing. Because if you told your boss, they might fire you. So you don't take your boss. You just do it. You're deceiving them and actually stealing from them. Taking yet another sick day off when actually you're fine. 
You know, one of the things that, that shocked me, just speaking as a fellow Australian now, but also an Englishman by roots, was how Australians tend to, in a worldly context, think of sick days as extra holidays. But that's not what your contract says. It's not what my contract says. So when we phone in, and people do it in the world all the time, we phone in and say, oh, yeah, I'm just not feeling very well, I need a day off, and then we go out to the beach. We're lying. Well, Satan lies. So we're impersonating Satan in that moment, who is the father of lies. And we're going to take that money off our employer, but we're not actually going to do our day's labor for him or her. It's stealing. It's actually robbing our employers of what was rightfully theirs, i.e. my day's labor, because I just want to have an extra day's holiday. You know, sometimes in all of our cultures, sins can be imbibed in our culture. I think this might be one of them. It should have no place among Christians. We should never be looking our employers in the eye and lying to them, and then effectively stealing off them by taking a day off which we haven't rightly earned nor deserved. It's called a sick day, not a holiday. In all these things are counted as stealing before the Lord. We can steal off the government. We can steal off our employers. You know who else we can steal off? God himself. See, all the way through the Bible, God is one of the first fruits of what he's entrusted to our care. And all the way through the Bible, we're called to give passionately and generously to him. It's a command on our lives. It's something we're called to do as Christians. You know, in the Old Testament, at the time of a guy called Malachi, the prophet, people stopped doing it. Israel decided, I don't want to tithe. They were called to tithe. Give the first 10% of their income. They earn $100, no problem. $10 goes to the temple, goes to the people of God. And people stopped doing it. They're like, I don't want to do that anymore. I might need the money. Or, you know, the, the temple's got tons of money. And God addresses them. Through the prophet Malachi, Malachi 3, verses 6 to 8, the Lord says, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Yet ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees, have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Well, will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? And I said, in tithes and offerings. See, God had called in the Old Testament the people of God to give generously and passionately the first fruits of all that he had entrusted to their care for them to give back to him for his glory. The people of God in the Old Testament were called by God to give generously to the temple of God. And then in the New Testament, the people of God are called by God to give generously to the new temple, the church. A place made up not of bricks, but of people. And so in all the way through the Acts, people would still continue giving passionately and generously, but it didn't go to the temple anymore. It was put at the apostles' feet, effectively the pastor's feet. And the pastors would store it and then give as those who had need and play a part of seeing the kingdom advance that way. It just was the way it worked all the way through the Bible. And to not do this, then God's looked back at you and says, you're robbing me. How quickly we can do that as we decide, oh, I ain't giving generously and passionately. In the Old Testament, it was 10%. I ain't doing that. But what have I got in my pocket? You know, I got 30 bucks. I can have that. 
I honestly think God would look back at you and say, listen, one of the things you need to understand is you are a thief. And you are robbing me of what I've entrusted to you. And you've decided to keep all of it because you're a thief. My friends, there is so much more to this command than meets the eye, is there not? We walk in and think, sweet, high five. And we leave, oh my goodness. Maybe stealing is a bigger issue in my life than I first thought. But the truth is, this command doesn't just prohibit us from things, it also gives us an opportunity. And that's my second point, the opportunity of this command. See, as with all the commandments, they don't just supply us with a list of prohibitions. They don't just supply us with a list of things we shouldn't do, but by implication, and then through explicit teaching as the New Testament goes on, they actually give us opportunities, things we should do. Now as Christians, how we serve Him and love Him, opportunity to do good. And for this particular command, we have to go to Ephesians 4.28, which we looked at the first half of earlier on. Because it's Paul in Ephesians 4.28 that really unpacks, okay, don't do this, but instead do this. He explains for us the opportunity of what this looks like before the Lord to honour Him and to serve Him and apply this command in a positive way. This is what he says, Ephesians 4.28. He says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labour, doing honest work with his own hands, so that... We always need to pay attention there. It's a so that. There's a point to this. I don't want you to steal. I want you to work really hard with honest labor so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. That's a game changer. He's making it clear for us. Listen, as Christians, don't steal. Instead, work really hard. Give yourself an honest labor before the Lord. Work really hard. Why? So that you may share with what God has entrusted to you with anyone who has in need. So don't be a thief. Be generous. Don't be a stealer. Earn it and give it for the glory of God. See, to truly understand this Eighth Commandment, you have to understand that this command isn't just about stealing. It's about stewardship. It's not just about not doing something. It's about stewarding what God has entrusted to you for something else. See, one of the teachings of Scripture is that all things belong to God. And I think it's something we can forget. I think it's something I can forget. And I think it's something that we can forget definitely in the West. Because we just think, no, it ain't. It's mine. I worked really hard for it. I remember it well. So it's mine. But God looks right back at each and every one of us and says, no, it is not. Everything in your house, everything in your bank account, everything in your wallet, everything that you think is yours is actually mine. It's the Lord's. So Psalm verse 24, verse 1, says, the earth is the Lord's. And the fullness thereof, all of it. The world and those who dwell therein. Psalm 50, verse 10 through 12. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and all its fullness are mine. 
You know, we can start to go into a different mode there, can't we? We think, no, they're not, they're mine. Imagine being a farmer. No, I think I have, they're my cattle, thank you very much. And God looks back and says, they're actually not. They're mine. What about our money? Well, Haggai 2 verse 8. You don't hear Haggai quoted very often. But Haggai 2 verse 8. For the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. He's making us see everything that you think you own, you actually don't own. It is all the Lord's. One of the foundational teachings of Scripture is all things belong to God. But then what you also discover as Christians is that he has entrusted some of what he owns into our care for us to steward. So everything that you see in your house, I mean, I had a chance to do this just yesterday in preparing for this message. I was looking around my house, and I was just walking around going, none of this is mine. That's not my book. That's not, that's not mine. That's even not even my computer. It was a really helpful exercise for me to remind myself all these things that I think are mine are not actually mine. They're the Lord's. But he has entrusted them to me for me to steward for his glory. You know, Jerry Bridges then talks about how we can have three responses to this reality, three responses to the reality that actually all things are the Lord's and that he's therefore given us things to steward for his glory. The first response is this, I don't have enough, so I'm going to take more. It's the attitude of a thief. He hasn't provided enough for me, so what's yours is going to be mine, and I'm going to come and get it because I want it. Well, welcome to the attitude of a thief. The second response is what's mine is mine, thanks. I'm going to keep it. Well, that's the response of the selfish. I understand that all this is yours, and I have complete peace that I am meant to keep 100% of it, and I'm going to use it for myself. All right, but be aware that is the attitude of the selfish. And then the third response is what's mine is God's, so I'm going to share it. And that is the attitude of the application of this command. Understanding, I'm not called to steal in my life. I'm called to work really hard unto the Lord And then I'm called to use some of what he's given me to make sure I'm caring for others. That I'm blessing other people that aren't living where I'm living, aren't enjoying what I'm living. And listen, I can safely say this. When you read about rich people in the Bible, your faces are in the story. We live in one of the wealthiest countries of the world, one of the wealthiest cities in the wealthiest countries in the world, one of the wealthiest areas of the wealthiest cities in the world. None of us in this room are poor. None of us. We are stinking rich. So what's our response going to be? Well, I don't have enough. I'm going to take more. Thief. What's mine is mine, thanks. I'm keen to keep it. Selfish. What's mine is God's. And so I'm going to share it. I'm going to steward it for his glory. Philip Ryken, in his wonderful commentary on Exodus, he says it this way. He says, Christians are called to live generously. We do not work simply to satisfy our own desires, but also to provide for others. This is not to say that we can never enjoy what God has given us, 
After all, enjoying God's gifts is one aspect of stewardship. But Christians who are as wealthy as we are should always be thinking about what we can give to someone else. It is only in this way that money loses its power over us. For as Kent Hughes has said, every time I give, I declare that money does not control me. For perpetual generosity is a perpetual de-deification of money. I love that. Every time I give, I declare that money does not control me. For perpetual generosity is a perpetual de-deification, de-godification of money in my life. Brilliant. See, my friends, make no mistake, it is not wrong to enjoy God's good gifts. Not wrong at all. It's a good thing. Ecclesiastes 5.19 talks about it. If God has blessed you financially, accept it, rejoice in it, and give thanks for it. Do not go home and think, I've just got to give it all away. I shouldn't have any of this stinking stuff. I've got to give it away. That's not the point of Scripture. Ecclesiastes 5.19, it is okay if God has blessed you this way to enjoy it for His glory and give thanks to Him. Likewise, it's not wrong to own things before the Lord. Exodus chapter 22, we're going to start to read a whole section about how you're meant to mark out your property so that other people understand this is yours. It's okay to own things. In Acts chapter 2, they didn't actually start a commune. What they actually did was just gave away different things that they had. They sold different things that that particularly the rich people had so they could bring the money in and to give to those who in need. But at no point do they say, okay, everybody sell everything. No one own anything. We're just going to be communal. No, it's not what the point is. It's okay to own things. It is okay to enjoy God's gift. But we must understand, as Christians, we are called to give generously. It's the call of God on our life. And I'd have to say for me, for me personally, as I live here, and as I seek to pastor here, This would be a particular burden on my life. Not because I'm after your money. I am not. It makes no difference to me. But I actually feel convicted before the Lord that I am preaching to rich people each and every week. We need to take that seriously. We need to take the responsibility that God has given us in this church seriously. Because one day we'll give an account. And my biggest job as a pastor is to help you this day in light of that day to come. So we have to talk about this stuff. Let not the thief, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing hard, honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. See, this command doesn't just give us prohibitions, it gives us opportunity. It doesn't tell us just not to do this, but it tells us to do this. But here's the challenge. Anybody else find this hard? We should be finding it super easy. I mean, I have the privilege of traveling to different places and you see massive poverty. And you could understand when all you own is a cardboard box and a pan, why you might not want to give away the pan. None of us are facing that. We should be like, mate, I am loaded. What do you want? But we find it really hard. I think we all find it really hard in different ways. Sydney dazzles us. And you look out and you think, well, we might be wealthy, but I know a lot more people wealthier than me. I ain't them. I'm probably the poorer people here. 
It's funny how we, when we compare ourselves with people, we never compare ourselves down, do we? We compare ourselves up. Well, I'm not like them. I don't have what they have. Our hearts are deceitful above all things. Do you know that? When you're dealing with your heart, you're not dealing with like some sweet grandmother that says, oh, just give it all away. Give it all away. You're speaking to like the local car salesman whose greasy hair is just a problem. And he's like, whoa, you gave last year, you know? Keep it for yourself. You know, they're probably looking for money. Don't listen to them. They're probably looking for money. That's what our heart does. Our heart deceives us in a hundred different areas. It does me. Sometimes we can want to keep it because we see what other people have and we think, I want to have what they have. Other times we don't feel that we've really got enough, so we stand in fear. So we think, I've got to keep it. Well, praise God the widow didn't say that with her two mites. We would have never had the story. She trusted herself to the Lord. It wasn't materially much, but it was an expression of, I trust you. You've got me. I'm so grateful then for me personally, for Jesus' words in Matthew 6. It's almost like he knows us, you know? It's almost like he made us and he understands the temptations we face. Matthew chapter 6, this is what he says. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus knows what it's like. He knows the temptation. So he makes it clear to each and every one of us. Listen, Sovereign Grace Church, do not store up yourselves treasures here. Because you ain't taking it with you. There ain't no hearses pulling a U-Haul, okay? It's not going to be happening. You're dead. It's gone. No one takes it with you. Don't store it for yourself treasures here, but lay it on ahead. Give it away. Bless others. And in doing so, you credit it to your account above. That's what the Bible teaches all the time. Don't lay it for yourselves treasures here, but give away what you can to lay it for yourselves treasures above. And make no mistake, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You want your treasure to be Sydney? You want your treasure to be this life? No problem. Spend all your money on yourself. Spend all your money doing up your house, doing your things, doing what you want to do. No problem. Just be aware your heart will be here. That's all it will be. You will never be dazzled by the Lord. You'll never be amazed with the church. You will never long for heaven. You will just be here. But you start giving your money away. And you start investing it into the kingdom of God. And you find you wake up in the morning being passionate about the Lord, being passionate about the church, being passionate about heaven to come, because you know that's where my life is all headed. They're not my words. They're the words of Jesus. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, there is so much more to this command than first meets the eye, is there not? It is not just about stealing It's about stewardship. And where that leaves us then, point three, briefly and finally, is the hope of this command. The hope of it. You see, when you start to realize this commandment's prohibitions and opportunities, it can so easily and quickly be somewhat overwhelming, can it not? (laughs) You start to realize all the things you shouldn't be doing, 
and all the things you should be doing. And the temptation is to, can somebody dig a hole for me? And I'll just like, you know, fit in it for a while. Because this is hard. This is a challenge on my life. You start to relate to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7 when he says, why is it that I keep doing the things I know I shouldn't do and I don't do the things I know I should do? Oh, wretched man that I am. There's a battle going on in his heart. He wants to live all out for Jesus, but he's aware, oh man, this is difficult. There can be challenges and temptations that hit me on these various issues. It can be so easy to be quickly and easily overwhelmed. But I want to encourage you, church, we have a hope. A true and glorious hope, and his name is Jesus. See, when he died for 2,000 years ago in our place, we've all known the scene very well. There is a big cross in the middle, and there are two crosses either side. And we never really pay attention to the two crosses either side because we just want to be all about Jesus. But in the Gospel of Mark and in the Gospel of Matthew, we read that those two crosses were inhabited by two robbers, thieves. Either side of Jesus that day were two robbers. They had given themselves to breaking the Eighth Commandment each and every day of their lives. They were thieves. And then it's in the Gospel of Luke that we hear the conversation with these two thieves taking place. One of the thieves on the one side starts mocking Jesus, starts laughing at him and giggling at him and and mocking. You're here with us. And then on the other side, the thief turns around and he tells the other robber to stop it because this is the Lord. That we're here because of our sin. We're here because we're thieves. But he hasn't done anything wrong. And he turns to Jesus, even while he's hanging on the cross, and he says, hey, listen, if there's any way for you to remember me, please remember me. And Jesus turns to him and says, today, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus recognized that in that moment, this robber was putting his faith in him as his Lord and Savior. This robber knew he was sinful before the Lord and knew there was nothing he could do about it and he was guilty as charged. And Jesus looks right back at him and says, Today, though, I forgive you. Today you will be with me in paradise. For in that very moment, this man knew what it was like to be completely forgiven of his sin, completely washed clean of his sin, to know when his eyes close in death, heaven will be his home. Not because of his behavior, but because of what Jesus was achieving in his place in this very moment. My friends, for each and every one of us in the room, we have a hope and his name is Jesus. The same hope that this robber had in this moment, aware of his sin, is the same hope that we have. For 1 John chapter 1 says, If if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that not a happy discovery? When we realize I have sinned before the Lord, I'm not stewarding the way I should be. I'm, I'm stealing in the way I shouldn't be. And we cry out to Him for forgiveness. He says, yes, I will. I will forgive you. For blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Jesus has paid it all. 
He took your life. Oops. He took your life and your sin on the cross. And he paid it all. See, so often when we think about Calvary and we think about that scene of the three crosses, we, we look at it and we think, well, you know, that was Jesus and that was two thieves. But as God looked at that scene in this day, what he actually saw was three thieves. Two of them dying for a crime they committed. And one of them dying for crimes he never committed. Your crimes. My crimes. For if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a happy discovery, don't you think? Jesus paid it all. You know, if the commandments are doing nothing else in your soul, I pray that they are making Jesus greater in your eyes. He fulfilled every one of these. It's amazing. What a savior, what a king. Our hope of forgiveness is Jesus. And you know what? He's our hope for change as well. Our only hope. We shouldn't leave these messages just on the premise of, well, I should try harder. We should leave these messages on our knees saying, Lord, would you help me then to become more like you? Help me to be more like you. Grace has paid for my sins and brought me to life. He's done it all. And grace clothes me with power to do what is right. He's the only one that supplies the fuel to help us to become more like him. So church, I want to encourage you, keep looking up. Keep leaning into the word and keep looking up. And may his grace abound to us all. May the fruit of these commands be that we walk in this pathway evermore by his grace and for his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I do conclude in prayer by thanking you for your grace. Oh, your grace is sufficient for us, Lord. Your grace, past, present, and future is our only hope. And I I thank you as we sing, even in closing, we sing, not primarily as sinners, but in your eyes, we sing as saints. People who you have declared righteous before you, clothed in the righteousness of your Son. Lord, I pray that that clothing would encourage us and compel us to want to be the people you declared us to be. To live in this fallen world and lost world. Generous. Not thieves. But honest and hardworking and then generous, sharing it with the poor. So Lord, would you give us grace for this wonderful task. Thank you for your care and intimacy towards us. And would all glory go to you as we apply. In Jesus' name, amen.